real hard. <laughs> In the name of love, Bono. This is Mike Jackman with Jackman Radio coming at you with a fresh episode backed by U2, one of our favorite bands. Amped up by those whiskey-drinking, potato-slinging mix from Ireland. The truth. Our two, brothers. Two chords in the truth. And also joined by Aaron LaFond. How are you, LaFonda? Yep. Yep. That's his canned response, Mike, and you're not going to get anything else. He's that good. Yeah, he is. How is Bono doing these days? He bust up his whole face and shit. In the name of a fracture. He'll never be able to play guitar again. Really? Yeah, oh. he, he broke his humorous bone. Yeah, because he was Jimi Hendrix. Eye socket. Uh, he had all kinds of lacerations and injuries. It took months and months. And I, I think as a response to that, he dyed his hair blonde for whatever reason. Pretty, qu- <coughs> Pretty quick uh, turnaround, though, for a guy his age. How yeah. old is he? Bono's probably 52. 52? 53. Yeah. Not that that's that old, but I mean, you're driving a bike around Central Park and you, you, know, you eat shit like that and get all those really nasty. He injuries. dumped it pretty hard, didn't he? Yeah, he did. It was cool. Recently, they did a show at they did like a, a five show residency at Madison Square Garden. Yeah, and he brought up the the woman who called the police to to help him after his accident oh, really? on stage, and he had Jimmy Fallon up there in the Roots, and uh, it was really cool. And Bruce Springsteen was of she a, did she was she a U two fan? Like, does she know anything about U two? I don't know. You know, I think she Puerto was, Rican, I, old Puerto Rican woman that knows nothing city. about you. Yeah. And these Irish immigrants, they're here, man. They're, they're falling all over themselves drunk. Goddamn Irish. She was actually, she worked for the Queen. She hates Irish people. Yeah. Well, she's an English sympathizer living in New York. She happened to help Bono. Right. Uh, wow. That's, we saw you two six years ago. Yeah, at Gillette. 2009. We had pretty, good. pretty shitty seats. Oh, yeah. But it was, no, it was great. Seats yeah. make all the difference. They do. They really do. Yeah. They really do. You went to a show at what Great Scott or a really small venue recently? Like yeah, I got a lot Boston? of small, small spots, but yeah. What was the band you saw? Uh, what show? Like last the week. The small. You one? said it was like a room. It was just like oh, a room. yeah, yeah. Girl band. I went and saw a band called TV Girl. TV Girl. And they're just kind of like this lo-fi, like poppy band, and didn't, they're didn't from we, California. Didn't we close the last show with one of their songs? Yeah, or a show I or think two so. ago. Right, okay. right, right. That's and what it was. Um. Yeah, it's just like this tiny little coffee shop. I didn't really know what to expect. Like, I knew they were a small band, cause, but I didn't know. You know, I just I just knew what I heard, and I liked their song, so I went. And it was cheap. It was like a $10 show. So I knew it was going to be like a small place. That's cost, yeah. But uh, it was really small, and they were like, you know, teenagers, you know. It was you just felt like, like an old man at yeah, 28. Yeah, it was just very Can you weird. picture La Harvey there, though, Mike? I like, wilding out? I can out. picture him there mixing it up, drinking, you know, PBR or Schlitz PBR, and yeah. doing his thing on the dance floor of Ivan. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to lead off tonight with a a big news story. They are remaking Nightmare on Elm Street again. Oh, really? How many times is this? Well, this would be the second time. uh, (laughs) This is refried for the second Second time? Second remake. They did a reboot in 2010. They had uh, Jackie Earl Haley play Freddy Krueger, who was in, of course, Bad News Bears, Little Children, um, and played Rorschach and Watchmen. Was the guy who played Freddy. (laughs) Was he a kid in Bad News Bears? Yeah. Oh, Back really? With Channing yeah. Tatum? Yeah. Uh, no, not Channing Tatum. Uh, or uh, Tatum, Tatum O'Neill. O'Neil. <laughs> Channing Tatum <laughs> O'Neill. He was a sperm then, Yeah, yeah. as Jeremy would say. Yeah. He was just a sperm. So now they're, they're doing another Nightmare on Elm Street. I thought the 2010 remake was, was had some moments, but overall it was uh, severely lacking. Like a lot of remakes, and it just tried to make money as a slasher flick and not really do any dream sequences that are had the imagination of even the sequels in the 80s. I didn't which, even bother to see it. Which I love, you know. The, I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street's a pretty overall, pretty solid series. Oh, yeah, it's a great uh, Johnny Depp's in that first scene. in the scene. first one. So yeah. great seeing him get killed. Yeah. Right off the bat, like your first yeah. role. Hacked! Badass. Catches your attention, grabs your attention right away. Yeah, I mean, that's the... Uh, 
you know, that, that film was a, came out in 84, so you're looking at 31 years, now they're doing another reboot, and there's rumors they're going to bring back Robert Englund, the original Freddy, which I think would be... He's, he's too old. He needs more money. Which would, yeah. which would be wise. Well, she makes enough money signing autographs in the convention circuit. Yeah, he year. got some money out of us. Yeah, we, we went and met him. We went and saw him. Couldn't even uh, afford a deodorant stick. The guy stunk. <laughs> Serious B.O. We went and saw Freddy. It was great meeting him. We'll, we'll post a picture of us with Freddy, but... Anyways, we just yeah. want to lead off a little little horror and, story. And then speaking of reboots, remakes, and, and you know shuffling old shit, Fantastic Four tanked. Well, I didn't even, tanking I didn't at the even box know office. That was a thing. I didn't even know there was a movie until I saw how bad the reviews. Like everyone oh. was saying how bad the reviews were for this movie. I didn't know it was. A this movie. is actually the fourth film incarnation since the early nineties. And uh, this, yeah, this one had a hundred and twenty million dollar budget. And I checked IMDb earlier, and it's raked in sixty million. So. You know, they're not even, they're not even near, they're just at half recovering their budget. This one didn't have Jessica Alba. And uh, Josh Trank, the director, took to Twitter and really, really put his foot in his mouth. He said, a year ago, I had a fantastic vision of this and it would have received great reviews. Now you'll probably never see it. And that's reality. That tweet may have cost the film five to 10 million during opening weekend. Could you imagine that? It erased it, but the damage is done. I mean, it's Well, yeah, he erased it, but yeah, they have it. It's there. Five to 10 million for a tweet. That's ridiculous. I don't understand no, how no they really, could even. There's no way to to measure that though. Like, how do you how do you projected loss? You know, it's all. There's no way to prove it. Well, I don't know. Maybe based on followers and based on trends. You know, because we're all about trending. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't I don't see how they could have made another Fantastic Four and had it do well. You know, it's just. I think it's the original uh, Stan Lee Marvel comic book series. Well, see, that's but, the thing. It's not it's, Marvel. Marvel. It's just Fox still owns the rights to Fantastic Four. Right. Same as Spider Man. That's where they've been making shitty Spider Man movies and shitty fucking um, Fantastic Four movies is because they they won't. Fox won't sell the rights to to Marvel. Someone who's creative. They think they can do it. So they just need to give in, sell the rights to Marvel, let Marvel do it the right way. I think they're letting Marvel have Spider-Man in the next X-Men. Yeah, they are. They yeah they they finally sold Spider-Man. So because Sony owns Spider-Man. Oh, Sony. Okay. And they just they just sold. uh, Kate Mara, uh, Zoe Barnes from House of Cards is in it, wearing a ridiculous wig. Yeah. And Michael. No, not Michael Chiklis. They had the the, you know the kid who played Billy Elliot. Remember that dance movie, Billy Elliot. Yeah, he plays the thing in this one. And then um, the dude from Whiplash, the drum movie. Miles Teller. Miles Teller plays... Uh, the main... Yeah. The main Fantastic. Mr. Fantastic. Mr. Fantastic. Yeah, Dr. Fantastic. It's, they're kind of a cartoony, like, superhero group. Yeah, they're group, you cheesy. Know? Kind of, yeah, it's... Yeah. And I think Michael B. Jordan plays the uh, flame. The dude from Fruitvale Station. The flame. Yeah. What's his yeah. name? The, <laughs> the human torch. torch. Yeah. <laughs> the flame. The black is that, torch. Is that the Elton John version? The flame? Yeah. Hi. <laughs> I, I'll uh, extinguish your fire. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> triple X porno parody at Ron Jeremy. Oh. And now, Ron Jeremy with the weather. Oh, my God. <laughs> the flame. That's yeah, great. I probably won't see it. Did you guys? No, no I'm, of not gonna, not. I'm not going to. I maybe rent it down the road. I've kept up on most of the, the Marvel. I stopped watching movies after 9-11. Yeah. Uh, uh, Ted, Ted Cruz, Cruz over there. Yeah. <laughs> Aaron, he loves that. You, I know. You love that Ted Cruz took that stand. Yeah. And then you got to see this, Aaron. Uh, Ted took a AR-15 or some kind of you know high-velocity weapon and wrapped the edge of it, the end of it, um, in tinfoil and bacon. Fired off a bunch of rounds and actually cooked the bacon with the heat from that is bad from that, and then opened up the tin foil afterwards and ate the bacon. Something Popeye would do. Oh, that's symbolic of something. Yeah, yeah something just gimmick. <laughs> so much gimmick in this election. I'm loving it. Yeah, how about Rand Paul cutting up the tax code? Yeah, with a chainsaw. he literally took a chainsaw and put it in a wood chipper, like thirty thousand pages of U.S. Yeah, tax code. Excellent. You know, this is how libertarian I am. And uh, did you guys see what happened to Bernie Sanders at an event? It was like over the weekend. It was in Seattle. He was about to speak about um, Social Security and, and policy to a huge crowd that had gathered to see him. And these two activists from Black Lives Matter stormed the stage and took over the mic. And uh, I guess he was going to give them whatever. They, he, he stepped aside to let them speak. And I guess they went on for 20 minutes or whatever. And Bernie ended up just leaving. He didn't even speak. No way. Yeah, yeah I did see a little, a little Ooh, that, saw clips that. Of wasn't that. a good move on his behalf. Yeah. You had all those people show up waiting for him? Yeah. Oh. Well, Man. I mean, they probably turned. They probably, you know, I don't, I don't know. Well, Bernie just drew twenty-eight thousand people to a rally in Portland, Oregon, over really? over the weekend, 
Wow. And, and that's that's pretty. Wasn't that thus far the biggest campaign event? Oh, so far? absolutely! In this whole cycle of any side, that's a that's a big gathering. Man, compared to Trump sh- shenanigans, that doesn't even get covered. Well, yeah, that's what I was saying today. I was saying, you know, Bernie Sanders draws twenty eight thousand people to a rally, and now back to your regularly scheduled flame war with a media poodle and Donald Trump. Did you did you see the back and forth between Donald Trump and? And Fox News. Megyn Kelly. Well, the guy, he got uninvited to a forum. Was that her name, Megyn Kelly? Megyn Kelly. Uh, Megyn Kelly was one of the moderators of the GOP debate last week, which was incredibly entertaining, by the way, folks. So exciting. If you didn't see this, uh, they tried to cannibalize Trump, and it only made him stronger. <laughs> it's like the force. If you try and cut me down, Darth, yeah. I'll only become stronger. <laughs> and one with the ratings force. <laughs> and boy, did he ever... It's just a phenomenon that just it just can't be stopped. He got the most talk time during the debate by at least 11 minutes. Was asked the first question and asked the last question. Of course he was, Mike. Man, I think he held his own. I mean, yeah, he did. He was just he was getting body blows and he was absorbing them and taking them and uh, not letting it fluster him. But subsequently, in some media appearances, he was talking about blood coming out of various orifices of the female anatomy. And I think we can all agree what he was, what he meant. Of course. What he was talking and about. And he also, you know, said, uh, Hillary came to my wedding because she had to, because I gave. And then apparently Hillary today through her spokesman said that um, she went to the 2005 wedding because she thought it would be fun and claimed that she didn't know him that well. And Clinton's communication director uh, said that Trump's comments hurt Hillary's feelings. Yeah, that was a little crass. It hurt her feelings, I'm sure, to hear him suggest that he didn't want her there for her company, said Jen Palmieri, Clinton campaign communication director. Yeah, that's that was crass. That was kind of a crass moment, you know. He's getting better in some aspects, but he's, you know, I mean, these people are killers. He, he's been calling people killers yeah. the last week. That's his new one. Smooth criminal. It's great. I mean, what's what's next for Trump? We're actually going to see him on Friday, aren't yeah, we? Yeah, hopefully on Friday we'll be able to see the Donald and... Uh, Get some cool things. Where's so, he going to be? Um, Hampton. Hampton uh, on the coast. So on I have the boardwalk. Di- uh, no, at uh, high be school. Selling fried dough on the boardwalk. Yeah, right. <laughs> this is huge fried dough. I mean, this is incredible. I mean, it's tremendous fried dough. <laughs> Maybe under the boardwalk. Fried in America. Yeah, well, under the board. That's what the people are doing. The raping Don under the boardwalk. <laughs> Rosie will be having some fun under, under the, the boardwalk. May her looks like it was dyed by the sun under, under the boardwalk. Trump walk. Rosie. <laughs> There's an HR department at, at Trump International, Well, of right? course there is, and the HR stands for Hate Rosie, and everybody has to sign a contract <laughs> saying they hate Rosie, because if they don't, quite frankly, they have no business working here for me. He just fired, or... or Roger Stone Roger pulled Stone a stunt, publicity resigned. stunt, yeah, yeah, with the Trump campaign. I mean, and now he's still saying Trump should be president, and he's this and that. Tell our listeners who Roger Stone Roger is. Roger Stone is just the ultimate political hitman uh, for the for the Republican Party for the better part of 40 years. He was a close Nixon guy after Nixon was in there, and... Um, you know, he was involved in the takedown of Elliot Spitzer in New York. You know, he's a rough and tumble political operative, old school, always really well dressed, very well spoken. Um, and now in the last election turned to the Libertarian Party, renounced the Republican Party and supported my friend Gary Johnson. Right. And he's he's got all kinds of books and stuff about the uh, Kennedy. Yeah, he's in the camp uh, that prescribes to the notion that LBJ got rid of Kennedy and was involved. And he's got some interesting stuff about that. Definitely a guy we'd like to get on here. We'll try and get him. uh, You guys have. uh, Yeah, we we tweeted each other sometimes after a few martinis, you know, tweeted the old guy. Yeah, exactly. Did uh, uh, Did you guys hear who was spotted down in Boston on the set? Bill Murray. Bill Murray, Ghostbusters. Oh, really? The new Ghostbusters allegedly has a cameo in it. Oh, of course he does. Dan Aykroyd does, which is confirmed, and now Bill Murray they're talking about. And it was the only reason the, the, the original cast didn't reunite for all those years was because he never wanted to do it. He right. didn't even want to do Ghostbusters 2, a lot of people don't realize. Are they going to have like a Tupac hologram of Harold Ramis in the movie? <laughs> they're just going to reuse footage from Orange County or something. Or uh, what about... Uh, Ernie Hudson is he going to be in it? Oh, I'm sure he has. He to definitely be. will be. He's been begging for he's this. Been, yeah. He's been championing. He's it like, for... you see some of the movies I had to make. You yeah. know, he's been wanting it, wanting it for a while. You know, so look for that, Bill Murray. You had another. Yeah, I was going to bring up uh, how dark. This is kind of a different change. Uh, how doctors want to die. How they perceive the end of life. Uh, Stanford University study shows that ninety percent of doctors who uh, are faced with terminal illness or knowing that their days are numbered and there's really nothing to do about it, don't want to receive aggressive treatment or chemo, or if they happen to have cardiac arrest, do not want to be resuscitated, and they really? want to die at home, uh, low-key, and less aggressive. 
That's how doctors want to die. Ma- majority of doctors, because, I mean, look, they deal with it. They deal with the end of life, and they see how horrible it is when someone's strung up and hooked up to a bunch of machines. They're yeah. not alive. They're like a, you know, you're like a Darth Vader embryo <laughs> just waiting to take your last breath, you know? It's just like a prolonged uh, stasis. It's like, agony, man, for yeah. the family and for the, the person who's dying. And, um, you know, I guess uh, a doctor by the name of Ken Murray, who was quoted for this, said, um, I fit in with the vast majority of doctors who want a gentle death and don't want extraordinary measures taken when they no longer have meaning. So basically, like, knowing that it's the end of the line, yeah. you know, the Wilbury song. Yeah, end of the they line. They don't want to have a prolonged pity parade and... They want to fade into the mystic. They want to just, they want to, yeah, they want to go. What do you think about that, Aaron? I kind of like that. My grandfather died at home in bed, 90 years old. He went to sleep and he didn't wake up. Mm, yeah, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, I always thought it was cool when the monks in Vietnam lit themselves on fire. That's pretty badass. Like, I like to do something like that. Wow. Like with a robe? Shave your head? Uh, yeah, yeah, with a robe. I mean, you're like, gonna be naked eventually, you know, after five <sighs> seconds anyway. So, but you know, but yeah, you gotta like meditate, learn how to meditate, and all that. I don't know. He's yeah, actually a, thinking about that. Yeah, he was a process thought process that he had. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm talking about just like going to bed and just that's it. You're done. You know, you know when you're right. at the end of the rope. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty I mean, drastic. Yeah, but rather, I'm in, I'm into that though, Aaron. That's pretty good. I'm not. I don't like everyone. I you know people say how they hate hospitals. I don't really hate. I kind of like. The smell of hospitals Mike. and like I don't <laughs> know, it's just they never really bought it never really bothered me. I like how neat everything is in the hospitals. I, I like the applesauce. They do a good job there. Yeah. I guess if you get a cute nurse, you know, right? You op- open the cupboards, everything's where they need and, to be. And you if you're wearing the robe, you can free ball. You don't have to wear underwear. Yeah. That's yeah. that's I'd, a plus. I'd bring my own clothes probably. Yeah. Yeah. So that that's pretty interesting. Uh Stanford study and there's you know, there's books out about that, how people in the medical field uh view the end of life. Pretty interesting. Mm. And then, you know, pretty good, good stuff. stuff. Olive Garden's closing in Keene. Oh, really? Yeah. I haven't been there in I years. I never went there anyway. So. Yeah, it's this corporate place that, you know, everyone wants. It's like a go-to place for people who don't really have good taste buds. It's <laughs> not Olive Garden. Yeah. You know? It's not real Italian. They've obviously never been to the north end of Boston. Good pizza, or... actually. The personal pizza at Olive Garden is delicious. Yeah, I never, I never had that. No, no one ever thinks to uh, no one ever thinks to get the pizza there. So why are they closing? I don't know. I just saw that in the Sentinel. It just Black said, people. Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Olive Garden lives matter. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's ridiculous. Oh, man. Um, I don't know. Because their food sucks, maybe? <laughs> maybe they want to open up something, uh, you know, local, organic. Or, and, um, speaking of uh, cool ways to die, if you happen to be in a controlled uh, or occupied area of Syria that ISIS is running, taking God's name in vain could lead to prison. Smoking cigarettes, a public lashing. Playing cards, being locked in a cage for days. Life in Tal Abyad, a dusty town on the Turkish-Syrian border, and a gateway to the area of Syria ruled by extremist militants has had all this in place for two years while they occupied the place. Oswald, if you're like playing Magic the Gathering, you're gonna get caged. Public lashing. Wait, yeah. caged? That sounds yeah. They're terrible. gonna they put you in a cage outside and keep you there. Nicholas caged. Nicholas Cage. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to join ISIS. I'm trying to learn from a new part. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Kurdish forces liberated the frontier town, and ISIS fled back to their stronghold in Raqqa. Um, and there was a two-year cigarette smoking ban. And one guy said, if you were caught for each cigarette. Each single one, you would be fined 1,000 lira, which in Syrian pounds is like $4.60 US. I can get behind that. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah, you'd like that. ISIS that has America. a good healthcare pro- program. Yeah. yeah. Right? Getting fined for cigarettes and getting caged Chop for Chop off your fingers so yeah. you can't do anything with them. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Not bad. ISIS. Mm. Ridiculous. That's too That's bad rough. that people still think like that. <laughs> How about those girls that shanghai the ISIS guys on, on social media and got them to send all this money? What? They thought they were going to go join the cause. They ended up just taking the money and fleeing. It's like, yeah, now you have ISIS after you pissed off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what happened? They they got some scam going where they were two talking, girls did two girls were talking to members of ISIS, and uh, the girl they thought the girls were going to come over and join the cause. Oh, so, so they were going to they 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 funded they their funded trip? the tickets what and sent they them money thousands of dollars. Yeah, altogether it was probably like you know eight between four and eight grand oh, for the good two for of them. Wow, that's a gr- wow. They, they yeah. won't they won't come after you for that. They got other shit to worry about. Yeah, yeah, they got to get over here. I mean, how how the hell could someone from ISIS get over here? Yeah, I don't see it. I bet those girls sent a few uh, 
lewd Ooh, pictures. Yeah. They sent some selfies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Isis you're, selfie stick. You should get eight grand for no for nothing. <laughs> no, <laughs> an Isis selfie <laughs> stick. Yeah. Yeah, also used to take pictures and beat uh, infidels. Yeah. <laughs> Isis was being naughty. So uh, this week, uh, Wednesday night, I'm performing with uh, David Elliott, our side project Champagne Riots. We're doing our first live performance at Harlow's Pub at 8.30 p.m. Uh, maybe tonight we'll close the show with a uh, a track from yeah, our, we should. Absolutely. our recent EP, Statuesque. And we're gonna we're gonna have a violinist up there. We're When's gonna have the new one out. You guys have a new yeah. The new there's a new LP coming out called the Procession, which Aaron did the cover oh did I? design and artwork for, which is <laughs> awesome. You guys yeah, are gonna killer. love it. So it's we're killer. We'll be releasing that soon. Whenever Dave is done uh, mixing and mastering cool. it, so yeah, looking forward to that. So Harlow's maybe, is a great spot too. Oh yeah, Harlow's is uh, it's a lot of fun. So, anyways, tonight we have a special interview with um, someone from. This, you know, the 60s, who's, uh, in my opinion, a very important figure in the civil rights movement that doesn't necessarily get the recognition or, you know, justice that he deserves, uh, Abraham Bolden. He was the first African-American Secret Service agent to work on a presidential detail, personally hand-selected by John F. Kennedy. Really cool story. So he has some, he has an incredible story. Um, you know, he, he's got information about the assassination, personal time with JFK, dealing with the Secret Service, uh, trying to deal with the Warren Commission, the investigative body that looked into the assassination. And he's going to be joining us in just a few minutes. So don't go anywhere. We'll be back. more Jackman Radio, and I am pleased to welcome a distinguished gentleman and basically a piece of living history for the United States, Mr. Abraham Bolden. Um, Abraham, how you doing? Well, I'm doing fine, Eric, and thank you for inviting me to your program. Hey, it, it, it's an honor. I'm very excited to talk to you. We've got a lot of questions we want to ask you about, and I'm just going to uh, go, go a little bit into your background here for the people. Um, Abraham Bolden was born in January 19th, 1935, and he's an American former United States Secret Service agent and the first African-American Secret Service agent assigned to the Presidential Protective Division, and he was appointed by President John F. Kennedy in 1961. And Abraham, what's going on? What are you up to these days? Well, I'm just uh, retired, you know, and I'm I'm just um, uh, relaxing. And I, you know, I just finished my book in 2008, and uh, I'm just taking it easy. You might as well say, and just doing a little study. Yeah. And um, you know, I kind of wanted to get into the atmosphere and what the culture was like. Um, in the late 1950s, obviously, when Eisenhower was president, and then obviously during Kennedy's administration, what it was like to be a young black man in the Secret Service during that time, and how you were treated, and how you perceived your colleagues responding to you being in the Secret Service. Yes, well, you know, I uh, took a long road to the Secret Service. I uh was a, a musician. I was born and reared in East St. Louis, Illinois. I got pretty good in music. I got a music scholarship to uh, Lincoln University in Jefferson City, Missouri. Uh, but I had always wanted to uh, be a policeman or a lawyer, but my uh, family could not afford it, so I, I took the scholarship to uh, Lincoln University. But now, you know, the 50s, in 1954, we had the Supreme Court decision uh, integrating the schools. 
And behind that, uh, near that time, we also had the Emmett Till situation down in uh, Miami, Mississippi, where this young black man had been cruelly lynched and uh, had been uh, mistreated uh, down in Miami, Mississippi. So it was a very, very trying time in the United States of America. It was a very racist time. And there was a lot of conflict between the races and their killing and lynchings and things that were going on all through the South. And then right over into the 60s, uh, was we had to come in the election between uh, Nixon and Kennedy. John Kennedy was uh, a young senator at that time. And I think that my people have put a lot of hope and faith in his presidency. Uh, because uh, he was saying the right things. They felt uh, uh, empathy with him. So uh, so far as the uh, racist situation was concerned here in America, he struck a spark in the hearts of most of the African-American people in our neighborhoods, and, and he was deemed, as you might always say, a savior uh, for our people because of some of the promises that he had made. Now, President Kennedy beat Nixon uh, here in Chicago by some 8,000 uh, 8, votes in Cook County. Now, President Kennedy um, was a, a very, very, uh, you might say, intelligent. He was debonair. He was he gave us the impression of that uh, that Lancelot type of uh, uh, activity and. Uh, that, that we feel, you know, with a, with a folk hero, you might as well say, and that's, uh, that's how I regarded him. Now, President Kennedy, on, after he had beat Nixon by 8,000 votes here in Chicago, was coming to Chicago on April the 28th of 1961 in order to, uh, to attend the convention that was being uh, given to him, uh, a banquet dinner that was being given to him in honor of his uh, becoming president. He was very close to Mayor Daley. Yep. You know, they, the Kennedys on the merchandise mart here in oh, Chicago, yeah. Illinois. Absolutely. So they were very close together, Mayor Richard J. Daley and John F. Kennedy. Well, I had become a Secret Service agent on October the 30th of 1961 after having been uh, Illinois State Policeman for four years, and before that, I spent a year as being the first African American African American uh, detective for the Pinkerton National Detective Agency there in St. Louis. So I had a little experience doing the assignments of the detail, the Secret Service detail, on uh, on uh, about uh, April April the twenty eighth of nineteen hundred and sixty one. The assignments were being given in the federal building by the Secret Service uh, chief there, who, who at that time was Maurice um, D. Well, I understood that, uh, that you know, seniority counted for something, and I had only been an agent for a few months at that particular time. So now, much to my um, uh, chagrin, I, I really didn't like the detail, but uh, there was nothing I could do about it because, as I said, I was a new agent and uh, they had very little influence. Now, about 8.30 p.m. on April 28th of 1961, I was standing in front of the washroom, and I heard the motorcade as it arrived as it arrived at the McCormick Place here in Chicago. And the cameras were flashing, and they, all the reporters were stumbling over each other, and they were trying to get a good shot of the president. And I was looking up the steps, trying to see the president as much as I could while I maintained my position in front of the washroom, which was on the lower level. Well, as fate would have it, uh, I looked up for about the third time, and who was coming down the steps uh, but the President of the United States and every dignified uh, 
politician in Chicago was oh. following the president of the United States. The first thing that President Kennedy wanted to do when he uh, alighted from the automobile in front of McDonald Place was use the washroom, and there I stood. And uh, so, so that was just fate that day. So when I got, the president came down the steps, and uh, he stopped right in front of me. And uh, he asked me, uh, had there ever been, first he asked me, uh, are you a Secret Service agent, or are you one of Mayor Daly's finest? I said, I'm one of Secret Service agents, Mr. President. And he looked at uh, me, and he smiled, we shook hands. And one of the other agents who had accompanied him from Washington, D.C., so that's Agent Bolden. He's a new agent stationed here in Chicago. And during the process of shaking hands, the president asked me, Mr. Bolden, has there ever been a Negro on the Secret Service White House detail in Washington, D.C.? I was very surprised at him uh, bursting that conversation at that time. And uh, I said, uh, not to my knowledge, Mr. President. And the president asked me, he looked me right in the eye, and it was uh, really a legitimate a smile on his face. He says, would you like to be the first? Wow. I said, yes, sir, Mr. President. He said, I'll be looking forward to seeing you in Washington, D.C. And that was really uh, uh, a momentous time in my life. I remember that forever. He is the president of the United States, so much admired by my people, so much admired by me, who had made a success, the first Catholic president of the United States and uh, a very fine gentleman, I felt. Now, after I was so impressed with the president, I took a liking to him. And he had invited me to become a historical figure, and I understood that. During all of this civil rights upheaval and, and the uh, prejudice and the racial uh, differences that were being expressed at that time, uh, through all of that uh, uh, chicanery that was going on, he had put me in a position to be a credit to my people and to do something that would be outstanding historically for all the black Americans or African Americans all over the world. And I deeply appreciated that. So on or about uh, uh, June the 6th of the 1961, I went to Washington, B.C. and to D.C. and became the first African-American that was assigned to the presidential detail at the White House. And that was very, very uh, complimentary uh, so far as uh, I was concerned. I felt real good about it, and I wanted to do the best job possible. But I became disenchanted because I found that uh, many of the agents who were surrounding the president really disliked the president. And they disliked him because of his attitude towards the civil rights uh, movement that was going underway. They did not like the fact that he seemed to be partial to Dr. Martin Luther King. And um, many of them uh, were from the South themselves. The Secret Service agents right. were Southerners themselves. And uh, they uh, really disliked the president. They said many derogatory things, like complimentary things about the president of the United States. And, and they were really uh, um, uh, determined to, um, to embarrass the president of the United States by, doing, by talking about how he was uh, cohabitating with different women and hmm. things like that behind his back. Sure. But that that did not um, that did not uh, anger me so much as I became concerned about the conduct of the Secret Service agents surrounding the president, to drinking their own cabaret, and and the the conversations that they were engaged in, where they downgraded the personality of the president. It took me no longer than I would say a couple of weeks there where it was very obvious, it was very obvious that they didn't like to go at the president. Now, it was only a few, but it only takes one, one link in a chain, one weak link in a chain. 
Right. Now, when we were in Hyannisport, Massachusetts, I overheard a conversation. Several agents were in having a conversation in the little hotel where we were living. And I heard one of the senior agents, as a matter of fact, he was a supervisory agent, say that if an assassination attempt were to be made on the president of the United States, he would not respond. And he suggested that other agents let it happen. Now, I thought this was so serious. It, it was much more serious than the uh, violent racial attitude that had been shown against me. Uh, the supervisor called me uh, the N-word several times, yeah. told me I would never be uh, anything but an N-word, and so I should act like uh, N-word. And this was the supervisor of the ship. So Abraham, it, it just sounds like overall a really hostile environment and one where these guys' uh, job, along with your primary goal to protect the life of the president, um, it sounds like they were pretty nonchalant about it and really could care less what happened to Kennedy. Yes, that's right. That's right. And I uh, intercepted that attitude right away. Uh, not only that, the the main thing is that they had lost focus of their duties. See, Congress uh, gave the United States Secret Service the authority to protect protect the presidency of the United States regardless of who you are. Right. And so the job is much bigger than one man. President Kennedy is just one man, the president of the United States. But they had let their own prejudices, they had let those prejudices uh, get in the way uh, and block what their real duties were. Yeah. They had a personal dislike of the president and they had become confused as to what their duty should be in case that an assassination attempt would be made. Now, I went, when I got back into Washington, D.C. on July the 6th of uh, 1961, I went into the chief's office, Chief Huey Bauman at that present time, was the chief of the United States Secret Service, and I explained to the chief the danger that the president was in, President John F. Kennedy. And I told him what I had heard agents say about uh, not responding if an assassination attempt were going to be made on the president and the attitude that those agents had against the president. You see, now when I asked uh, the chief to transfer me back to Chicago, because I felt that my own life was in danger, especially after discussing this matter with the chief of the United States Secret Service. Well, I was transferred back to Chicago. And during that time, the president, in March of 1963, he came to Chicago uh, for another banquet. And I noticed that nothing that had changed with, with the actions of the Secret Service detail that was around him. The first thing that they did when they came into town was to go down on Rust Street to some strip joints, and they stayed out until about 3 o'clock in the morning. Boy, it sounds like nothing's and, uh, changed. <laughs> yes. It, it, yes, and I protested against it to, to the... Um, uh, to the uh, special agent in charge. I protested that. I said they're going to get the president killed. Jeez. And when Inspector Tom Kelly came and gave us our annual review, I mentioned it to Inspector Kelly also. And Inspector Kelly assured me that he would take some action on it because that uh, what was going on with the cabareting and the getting drunk and thing was against the uh, Secret Service manual, and it was also a danger to the president of the United States, so, but nothing was done about it. Right. Now, go, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, Abraham, do you, uh, had you heard anything about the night before the assassination in Dallas, the Secret Service agents being out at a club drinking and, and partying till the wee hours? Um, are, are you familiar with that story at all? Do you know anything oh, about it? Oh, yes, yes. I'm, I'm familiar with I'm familiar with that story. Of course, I didn't uh, uh, first suspect that that was going on when Walter Winchell, Walter Winchell, 
uh, made that report in his column. I knew as a habit what the Secret Service agents were doing when they went out of town. I would hear different Secret Service agents talking about the girls that they had uh, been with and, and the different parties that they give whenever the president went out of town. So I knew right away from from my first-hand experience what those agents uh, probably were doing in Fort Worth and Dallas, Texas. Right. And, uh, yes, I, I knew. So when, after the president was assassinated, now we have been giving, all doing says starting about uh, March of 1963, we had uh, developed leads on several uh, serious conspiracies to assassinate President Kennedy. They were very serious. One was in Miami, Florida. There was a person named Miltier that we were able to get an informant next to. And Miltier had a conversation that we recorded in which Miltilla said that the president was going to be assassinated. Now, he didn't say maybe. He said the president was positively going to be assassinated. Now, the Secret Service Agency in Miami, Florida, knew about this tape, and they knew that Miltier, who was a right winger, by the way, had told the Secret Service informant that the way that they would kill the president would be, number one, they would set up a patsy. Number two, they would put a man, uh, the assassins would be located in a tall building or warehouse building, and he would use a long-range uh, power rifle. And that's exactly what Miltier said. Wow. So on, we also had the DRE here in Chicago. We had um, uh, information that the president was going to be assassinated. We had an informant next to that group, too. And we had a lot of information as to these uh, problems that the president would be facing, especially when he went to Dallas, Texas. Now, the Secret Service, after the president was assassinated in Dallas, Texas, they rewrote reports of these investigations that had been made prior to the assassination and post-dating them to read that these uh, reports were done after the president was assassinated and they pertain to President Johnson. Mm. Uh, me being an agent, uh, I, uh, I detested that because I knew things uh, were being covered up. In the meantime, Johnson, uh, appointed the Warren Commission to look into the assassination of, of the President of the United States. Now, let me just get you to understand this, is that at the time that the Warren Commission was seated, I had good evidence, and I knew from first-hand experience and listened to the reports and seeing documents around the Secret Service office, that a wholesale cover-up was being conducted as to the um, threats against the president, President Kennedy, here in Chicago and, and elsewhere. The investigation of a serious investigation that we had was involved a man named Miltier. His name was Arthur Miltier, and uh, I mean not Arthur Miltier, Joseph Riley, as a matter of fact. Uh, president was due to come to Chicago on uh, November the 2nd. Miltier was, uh, was pointed out as a person who had threatened the president. He was subsequently arrested by the Chicago police who turned him loose, but uh, in the back of his trunk. He had a host of rifles. He had explosives. He had all of the weapons needed to assassinate the president of the United States. Right, so there was a tip had come in on Valley. Uh, was that a kind of an unknown tip? I mean, I, I had heard that the authorities were following Valley around for a couple of days. Is that true? They were following him around for a couple of days. They were following him around from October the 31st until he was picked up on the morning of uh, 
He was picked up on the morning of November the second. So was he, was he going to be the patsy? It sounds like he was going to be the patsy. Yes, leader. he was going to be the patsy. He had the same background as, as Oswald. Leon Oswald. He was an ex-marine, and um, he worked for the CIA. He told the agents that he was a CIA agent, and that he had worked and employed by the CIA. And so now that kind of fit the. Uh, the uh, experience of Lee Harvey Oswald. Wow. Yeah, it's in, it's interesting because he was a former Marine, like you said, and he also trained at a base in Japan that hosted the U-2 spy plane at Itsugi. And, um, you know, he had three names, which is kind of interesting. Um, he also was involved with an anti-Castro Cuban group and um, also had recently procured a job over the parade route where the president was going to be in Chicago. And I, I read Absolutely. I read that he, he later right. I read that he later testified to the House Select Committee um, saying that he had, you know, CIA assignments to train exiles to assassinate Castro. Um, did you ever meet him or, or, or tail him or did you kinda how did you know, what was your involvement in the investigation uh, with that? No, I never I never met uh, Bali, but uh, what I did do, I had a Secret Service automobile that was assigned to me. I listened on my radio as they were telling Bali, and at the time the Chicago police picked him up, and I think that the ruse that they used was that he had a tail light out in the car that he was driving, and that was all uh, formed and instigated by the Secret Service uh, uh, Deputy Chief uh, Martinau here in Chicago, Illinois, to pick Bali up, uh, because we really didn't have enough uh, to arrest him for conspiring to assassinate the president. And, but so he was turned to loose uh, up on about the 5th of, uh, the, about the 5th, I would say, the 27th of November. He was, tur he was turned to loose by the Chicago police, and uh, I haven't heard no more of him since that time. Right, and then there was another plot out of Chicago to Abraham that we read about that was um, probably, it may have been unrelated to Vali, but there was a, a group of men who were in a building and a, a woman claimed that... Yes, yes, that's right. What was the story that's on right. that one? That there were, we got a call, we got a call, and this this happened uh, around October the 31st, the Secret Service got a call from uh, from a lady who either owned or had a partnership in a small rooming house uh, located on North Avenue uh, near, near. Um, uh, let's see, that was North Avenue and North Avenue. I can't think of the name of the street now. Oh, North Avenue and Western, yep. yeah, Western Street here in Chicago. She called the Secret Service, Mr. Martin, and took the telephone call. And um, she explained that uh, she had been cleaning the room and there were several rifles with telescopic sights that she had discovered. Now, how she discovered them, were they, they were under the bed, over the bed, uh, in a closet or wherever they were, I don't know. But she said that she had discovered these, these rifles. Now, in the meantime, I didn't know this at the time, but... The night before that this maid or whoever she was discovered those rifles, there was a meeting between two Cubans and there was a meeting between three Cubans in Detroit, Michigan. And two of the Cubans left heading for Chicago in an automobile at on about the same time that this lady calls and said two Cubans came there with automatic weapons. Interesting. Now, the, the, the truth about that is this, is that it all ties in because these Cubans who were, came from Detroit, Michigan, who drove from Detroit, Michigan into Chicago, were gun runners. That's exactly what they were. And so, but I put it together that uh, they may have been linked with Valley that was never, you know, uh, uh, certainty. But that—that's what I felt. Well, it that can only be so much of a coincidence. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, Abraham, I mean, ultimately, what do you believe happened in Dallas, and, and who do you lay the blame at for the death of President Kennedy? Who do I, who do I blame? I think uh, from the inside information that I know, and I'm, I'm not doing this by research or anything like that. I'm not a researcher. But I think that there was government um, uh, influencing this assassination. And the way that it was carried out was rather ceremonial, yeah. as if that some clandestine organization was behind it, uh, sort of ritualistic type of sacrifice. It was, it was pretty textbook of, a, of kind of an operation that, uh, from start to finish, was executed with military precision. Yes, it was. Yes, and there were several shooters. Right. As a matter of fact, the Secret Service agents uh, who were in a follow-up car, especially one, John Reedy, who was standing on the right running board of the follow-up car, it was my information when he came to Chicago that uh, he thought that the shots came from behind and in front of him. Yeah, multiple and he angles. And on the running board of the president's car. And Abraham, did you know Clint Hill personally? Oh, yes, I met Clint Hill, a very diligent agent, yeah, very diligent. Jim Kellerman? he was assigned to uh, protect the First Lady. Right. And he did a, a, a remarkable job at it, too. Uh, he had a liking for Mrs. Kennedy, and, and uh, he, he was a stellar agent so far as I'm concerned. Did you did you ever speak with Clint afterwards about that or Agent Kellerman since they were so close? No, to... I didn't. I didn't speak with any of the agents uh, uh, about that except immediately after the president was assassinated. I discussed it with many of the agents in Chicago and some who were passing through, and I was just uh, discussing with them that some of the agents should go before the Warren Commission and let the truth be known to the American people. Sure. Now, the American people uh, uh, need to know the truth. And I saw these uh, doctored reports being uh, submitted to Washington, D.C., mailed in to James Rowley. And I uh, took it upon myself. I said, well, if nobody's going to do this, I think that I'll take it on myself. And when I go to Washington, D.C. on May the, May the 17th, from 1964 to attend school, I would try to go before the Warren Commission. They had not issued their final report yet, and they were still taking testimony. So when I tried to call J. Lee Rankin through the White House switchboard the next morning on the 18th of May, the Secret Service picked me up and brought me back to Chicago, not telling me why, only saying that they needed me back here for a counterfeiting uh, investigation. Well, before the day was over, they, Mr. Warner said that they were going to charge me with soliciting a bribe. Of course, I knew what it was all about. I knew that it was about this Kennedy assassination, and they feared that if I testified before the Warren Commission, that it might open a can of worms. One thing that I did not know, Eric, I had no idea that on uh, December the 6th of 1961, that Bill Morris had received uh, in an office uh, memo that had come from Kaisenbach, who was substituting for Robert F. Kennedy during the uh, funeral of his, of his brother, John Kennedy. Now, Kaisenbach wrote a memo to Bill Morris, who was one of uh, President Johnson's advisors, and in this memo, and I have a copy of the memo, he, it was stated that Oswald had to be found to be the lone assassin of President Kennedy. Now, I didn't have that information that any such memo existed right. when I made the telephone call to J.D. Rankin, and so I thought that I was performing a, a duty as an American citizen, as an agent of the United States government, to bring this to the attention of the Warren Commission. However, it didn't end up like that. I ended up on uh, two trials uh, and, and going to the penitentiary for three years and three months. Even after the, the, the uh, witnesses for the government 
admitted that they had concocted this plan yeah. at the behest of the United States government. Right. So you had you had a um you know, a ploy in place just to discredit you and take you down because you were going to go public about what you knew about misdeeds of the Secret Service, cover-ups, and the fact that the whole Kennedy thing just really stunk. And, and, and you were a guy on the inside, a Secret Service agent, protecting the president and privy to a lot of things. Yes, that's right. That's right. Wow. And, and that, that's what they fear. Man. So when you were incarcerated, they, they put you on drugs and tried to drive you insane, basically? I mean, what happened during that time? Yes, I was in I was in the uh, camp. I went to Terry Hutt Prison Farm, and I, and I also went to Fort Leavenworth, and then they sent me to Springfield, where they have another camp. But also in Springfield, they have the psychiatric ward for the inmates who are incarcerated. Now, on the uh, July the sixth of nineteen sixty-seven. Uh, they came to my bunk at 3 o'clock in the morning and marched me over to the um, psychiatric ward, stripped me down of my clothing and mechanism and forced me to take mind-altering drugs. Mm. And all of this not within the, the uh, legal, without legal court documentation which they were supposed to get before that they would uh, do anything with uh, an inmate such as change him from a camp status and, and to uh, psychiatric status. So that, that's what they did. They did it secretly. And, uh, of course, I came to it or I couldn't be here today. Right. And, well, that yeah, sounds like I a real just... Sorry, harrowing experience and, and, and just, the, that sounds like a nightmare, Abraham. It was a nightmare. It, it was a nightmare, but I came through it because of, uh, actually, it was only my family, my dear wife, and with the aid of God that brought me through it. It was, it was just a miracle that I was able to endure and do it. I was a lot stronger than I thought I would be. And now, Abraham, we all count ourselves obviously very big fans of President Kennedy, but at the same time, we have to admit that, you know, he was a flawed human being and he wasn't perfect. And um, I've always been interested in hearing us from a Secret Service agent who was there during the many times and instances where mistresses were snuck in and out of the White House. Um, Did you ever meet a woman named Mary Meyer? No, I never met her. Are you familiar with Mary Meyer? Well, it doesn't matter, but uh, when we went uh, on the Sequoia, that was on the Potomac, uh, one afternoon while I was stationed in Washington, D.C., there were a couple of, man, they were really nice-looking women that uh, <laughs> came and got on board with President Kennedy. Well, Ken, he had great taste in women. Yeah, he had great taste in women. Was there kind of this un... Oh, man, yeah, yeah. He had a couple of movie stars. <laughs> Marilyn Monroe. Was there this unspoken I, thing, Abraham? I'm not sure just who they were, but uh, at that, I'm just saying at that time, you know, I wouldn't have minded joining him down there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and was, it, was there kind of this unspoken thing, Abraham, between you and the president and the president's closest advisors that were just a wink and a nod, we're not going to say anything about the, the president's many mistresses? Yes, well, I felt really, really, I felt that it wasn't my business. That, that's not what I was there for. Right. You, you know, I had a job to do, and, and what he did was his own personal business. That, that's it a good point. to do. With my job as a Secret Service agent. Did you ever hang out at the presidential pool when Kennedy would be in there with women? <laughs> I know he took a swim a couple of times. And, uh, yeah, there, there were women in there. <laughs> there. There were a couple of women in the, in the pool. So, so the top... Of course, President Kennedy at the time I was on there, he had a bad back. So yeah. He had a real live uh, reason to have his Masseuse and the swimming pool with him. Right, and he had he had doctor he had doctor <laughs> doctor good would shoot him up too. <laughs> That's so, what they were saying. I, I never saw that. But, right. Uh, so I you, never saw doctor Feelgood, but I do know that uh, the, he was it was alleged that he was taking uh, pain medication. Yeah. 
So you you obviously got to spend some um, some FaceTime with JFK. Um, did he did he personally refer to you as the Jackie Robinson of the Secret Service, or was that a later he comment? Absolutely did. Let me just uh, tell you how that happened. They were having a cabinet meeting uh, at the White House, and uh, and when Hubert Humphrey and and Bear Goldwater exited the meeting, they came through the Oval Office door. And they left it ajar. And I reached in to close the door. And uh, President Kennedy looked up and he said, Mr. Bowen, I see that you made it here. And I was just elated that the president had recognized, not only recognized me, but he remembered my name and everything. And he said, let me introduce you to my staff. He introduced me to uh, Hubert Humphrey, Barry Goldwater. Then he took me to see Evelyn Lincoln. We shook hands. Took me to see Andrew Hatcher, who at that time was the uh, first African-American assistant uh, press secretary. And lastly, we came to uh, Pierre Salinger. Pierre Salinger, you know, he loved uh, baseball. And he called Pierre over, and he says, Pierre, I want you to meet someone. He said, this is Abraham Bolton, and he's the Jackie Robinson of the Secret Service. That's awesome. And I was, oh, that, that was just, it, it, it melted my heart. I almost burst in him with tears because I knew what Jackie Robinson had gone through, and I knew that the message that the president was, was telegraphing to me, he knew that I would be in a struggle. He knew that I was breaking ice, so, you, you know, and, Jackie Robinson, comparing me with Jackie Robinson, he expected from me to do the same thing that Jackie Robinson did. I think that's what he was saying to me. Well, that's that's some triumphant stuff there, Abraham. That's a beautiful that's, story. Uh, so, you know, after you went through your time incarceration and then you got out and you had a family life, Obviously, in the late 70s, the House Select Committee, um, you know, began to investigate the assassination. You got to testify to that committee. How was that experience different than trying to get the word out in your story to the Warren Commission? Now, I was very uh, disappointed at the, uh, the House Select Committee because, number one, I told them that the reports were adopted, especially in the, in the Echeverra case that Echeverra, prior to November the 22nd, had made the statement that the President Kennedy was about to be assassinated and that the Jewish lobby were putting up the money to have him assassinated. Now, since the report had been moved up to this conversation allegedly supposed to have happened, around December the 6th, after the president was assassinated, then that took the credibility away from what I was telling them concerning the Escherera case had been doctored. And so they took the Secret Service word, Mr. Martinoff's word, that there were no threats in Chicago against President Kennedy in 1963. You see, that was a complete fabrication. Complete fabrication, and and, and it, it uh, and and so it came out uh, late later on that uh, these this report I happen to have been able to get a copy of the report that uh, Mr. Martinell fabricated. Wow, that's incredible. And that sounds like the, the same alleged documents that they used to set you up with the $50,000 bribe and, and your fingerprints weren't on it. And it's just, I mean, it's, it's incredible, Abraham, that to this day you still haven't been, you know, the justice hasn't been served in your case, you know? Well, we're still working on it. Uh, and uh, anyone that would like a copy of my book, they go from Dealey Plast or would like to uh, interview me, they can contact me at uh, a.bolden at spcglobal.net. Right. I did suffer quite a bit, but uh, by, by the grace of God, I'm here today, and I'm talking with uh, my friend Eric, and <laughs> I really appreciate it. Abraham, it's been, um, it's been an honor to speak to you, and, and to everybody who's listening, the book is called The Echo from Dealey Plaza, The True Story of the First African American on the White House Secret Service Detail, in his quest for justice after the assassination of JFK, Abraham Bolden, a truly an historical figure in American history, 
uh, struggle for civil rights, really shattering, um, you know, I don't want to say glass ceiling, just shattering, you know, uh, segregation and injustice and um, being the first African-American to guard the president. It's just amazing. It's amazing uh, you're here to still tell the story, Abraham, and I really appreciate it. It's been an honor speaking with you. Thank you you very much. My voice is kind of weak now. You know, I'm 80 years old, (laughs) and I've been through quite a bit. I've had three heart attacks. I've had back operations. Uh, I've got pacemakers and all all this kind of equipment. I'm almost a robot. I think if they could do uh, a robotic brain, I, I could probably live forever. <laughs> well, your heart, your heart is still there, and your heart is still the young man that protected the president and, and tried to blow the whistle on the misdeeds. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Abraham Bolden, um, truly a pleasure speaking to you. And uh, if you want to check out more, you know, just go on Google, check them out, and we'll post links to uh, your book. Echo and, from DealyPlaza.com. Yep, and how to find you and. Uh, hopefully, um, you know, raise more awareness about your story. So, Abraham, you have a great evening. You take care of yourself and keep up the good fight. Thanks a lot. All right. Take okay. care. Good day. Bye-bye. Oh, that was uh, that was something. Abraham Bolden, ladies and gentlemen, uh, someone who should be a household name. There's a lot of information out there um, about his story that we didn't get to tonight. We tried to do an overview and with the Kennedy assassination, there are a lot of areas of interest and a lot of information. Yeah, but and, and, to be able to talk to someone who was actually there. I know. Living, and, he, uh, he is living U.S. history. He's a piece of history on, on so many levels with the information he had about the case. What he saw. The threats to the president. Him being the first African-American Secret Service agent. on Presidential detail. And um, it seems like he has a... <laughs> he, he hasn't lost his sense of humor either. No. And uh, I was just... Yeah. That was a... Very, uh, very excited to talk to someone like that, and uh, we hope you guys enjoyed it. And if you want to check out his book and his story, you go to echofromdealyplaza.com. Of course, his book, The Echo from Dealey Plaza, the true story of the first African-American on the White House Secret Service detail and his quest for justice after the assassination of JFK. Well, thank you for listening, everybody, and you can find us on Twitter at Jackman Radio, our website jackmanradio.podbean.com and of course we're on Facebook Aaron, Eric and Mike signing off, have a great day Stand in the middle of the night All I can see is your eyes